Chapter 5 Conduct of the Holy Prophet with slaves and his teachings on the issue of slavery. Issue of slavery in the Holy Prophet. War possesses a fundamental relationship with the issue of slavery, and Badr was the first formal war to have taken place between the disbelievers and Muslims. For this reason, in mentioning the Battle of Badr, the question naturally arises as to what teaching the Holy Prophet gave with respect to the issue of slavery, and what practice he employed in this regard. Hence, prior to moving forward, it would not be inappropriate to write a brief note on the issue of slavery. However, this issue is extremely vast and very sensitive. Furthermore, in order to comment upon this issue, one is compelled to take up many other discussions, for which there is not sufficient room here. Moreover, in my capacity as a historian, I cannot overly involve myself in such academic discussions. Therefore, on this occasion, I shall only cast a brief glance upon this issue from a fundamental perspective. And even in this regard, I shall confine myself only to such issues as relate directly to the teachings of the Holy Prophet and his practice. First and foremost, it should be understood that as elaborated upon in Encyclopedia Britannica, slavery actually began in the world as a result of war. Initially, the manner in which people were forced into slavery was through the aftermath of war between two tribes, two nations, or two countries. As a matter of fact, quite often, many or all of the males belonging to the defeated nation would be executed, and the women and children, except for those who were considered worthy of death, would be taken captive and made slaves. Thereafter, these slaves would be subjected to various types of work and labor, after this, on the one hand, civilization and commerce progressed in the world, and the demand for laborers and servants also began to grow. On the other hand, the practical experience of making women and children into slaves demonstrated that an excellent and easy method by which service and labor could be generated was to enslave the people of a defeated nation. For this reason, gradually the practice which then became prevalent was that except for those people who for some reason were considered worthy of death, even the men of a defeated nation were made slaves as opposed to being killed. They would then be subjected to forced labor and various domestic, national, and individual tasks. As such, history reveals that this practice gradually became so widespread that the number of slaves in certain countries even surpassed the actual population of the residents themselves, and the practice of slavery became an essential part of civilization and society. These slaves were considered to be the full property of their master, and he possessed the right to keep them as he so willed, use them for whatever task he wished, give them any punishment he desired, and sell them to another individual whenever and however he so pleased. Ultimately, the system took on such a vast nature that even the offspring of these slaves were considered to be the property of their master. And in this manner, a continuous and never-ending practice of slavery became prevalent. Furthermore, people eventually realized that this was a very profitable practice, whereby service could be derived from servants and laborers for absolutely nothing. It was not necessary to give them a wage, etc., and the slave was compelled to perform any service in all circumstances. As a matter of fact, aside from service, other benefits could be derived from them as well. Hence, aside from the practice of taking in prisoners of war, people invented many other cruel means by which to acquire slaves. For example, without any reason, 
people would attack a weaker tribe or raid a caravan and capture all of its men and women and take them slaves. Then the blemish of slavery would continue to forever taint the progeny of these unfortunate people. Therefore, gradually, both just and the unjust means of making slaves became customary and established throughout the world. At the time of the advent of Islam, this practice was more or less present in all countries. In the kingdoms of Byzantium, Greece and Iran, etc., hundreds of thousands of slaves were living a life of grief and misery. There was no one to tend to them, and in their collective capacity, their state was no better than that of animals. In this era, even in the country of Arabia, there were thousands of slaves. Moreover, the possession of certain number of slaves was considered to be necessary part of the property of the effluent. The people of Arabia particularly considered slaves to be immensely contemptible and disgraceful and would treat them as cruelly as they desired. As such, the severe cruelties inflicted upon such slaves, who became Muslims by the chieftains of the Quraysh, have been mentioned in volume 1 of this book. Upon receiving revelation from God, when the Holy Prophet ﷺ made his claim to prophethood, one commandment from among his early teachings was that slaves should be treated with compassion and kindness. Moreover, it was in this early era when the Holy Prophet ﷺ began to encourage the freeing of slaves as well. As a matter of fact, in this regard, a Quranic injunction was revealed that the freeing of slaves was a very good deed, along with the merit and attraction of the Islamic teaching itself, this particular injunction had a very deep effect on the slaves of Arabia. They began to perceive the voice of the Holy Prophet as being the voice of a savior. It is for this reason that despite the very ruthless cruelties inflicted upon the Muslim converts by the chieftains of Mecca, Islam began to rapidly spread among slaves. Therefore, as mentioned in volume 1 of this book, the ratio of slaves among the early Muslims was extraordinarily high. Moreover, history establishes that even in the early era, these people were not considered lower than others in any way. Subsequently, as Islamic injunctions continued to be revealed, the position of slaves became more and more stronger, and their conditions continued to improve. Ultimately, except for a difference in administration, where one individual was an officer and the other was his subordinate, no discrimination remained. On the other hand, the liberation movement of slaves continued to gain strength day by day, and the Muslims participated in this scheme with a spirit of healthy competition according to the emphatic teachings of the Holy Prophet and his practical example. Hence, the Holy Quran, books of Hadith, and history are replete with these accounts. However, in this regard, the question is whether the work of the Holy Prophet remained limited merely to that which has been mentioned above. And did the Holy Prophet not undertake any practical steps to abrogate the unjust and cruel practice of slavery? Even if that was all, the Holy Prophet would still prove to be a grand benefactor to the world in that he offered significant services in improving the states of slaves, introduced a movement to free them and give this movement a practical form. Yet, despite all this, the practical efforts of the Holy Prophet in this regard, which may be described as the true motivating spirit of this movement, remain hidden. As far as our research is concerned, and this research is not the result of bias, rather it is based on historical account, the Holy Prophet not only improved the state of slaves, but also also did away with the unjust and cruel practices of slavery for the future as well.
well. In other words, the teaching brought by the Holy Prophet relevant to the issue of slavery was divided into two categories. As far as efforts to reform were concerned, firstly, an improvement in the state of existing slaves and steps in securing their freedom. Secondly, the establishment of the fundamental injunctions for the future. At this point, we shall present a brief overview on both these aspects in light of the teaching presented by the Holy Prophet and his practical example. Teaching of the Holy Prophet ﷺ regarding the betterment of existing slaves. Taking natural sequence into consideration, first we take up the discussion which relates to existing slaves. Hence it should be known that the Holy Quran states, O ye Muslims, Allah the Exalted commands you to show kindness and benevolence towards parents and to kindred and orphans and the needy and towards your slaves and bondwomen and know that surely Allah loves not the proud and boastful. In this verse, it has been commanded that slaves should be treated kindly and benevolently. Then he states, O ye Muslims, marry not idolatrous women until they believe, and know that a Muslim bondwoman is better than an idolatrous, although she may appear better to you. And O ye Muslims, give not believing women in marriage to idolaters until they believe, and know that even a Muslim slave is better than an idolater, although he may appear better to you. In this verse, aside from the fact that the position of slaves has been made significantly stronger, a door has been opened for marriages for Muslim men and women, with slaves and bondwomen, so that this relationship of equality and affinity improves the state of slaves as quickly as possible. As such, among other wisdoms, according to this principle, the Holy Quran has also commanded that after the final and exceptional limit of four wives has been reached, if the question of marrying a female servant arises from a Muslim, this fixed limit of four would not be a hindrance in his path. Such a person would be permitted to marry the female servant in all circumstances, so that the path to the improvement of the state of slaves is never obstructed. Then he states, O Messenger, the women you have married until now are sufficient for your endeavors in preaching and training and governance. Hence, it is not permitted that you marry any other women. Albeit, if the question of marrying a female slave arises, then permission is granted. This injunction is also due to the fundamental purpose mentioned above. Furthermore, another reason was so that an excellent model could be established for the Muslims by the practical example of the Holy Prophet. Then he states, O ye Muslim women, display not your beauty and embellishments except to your husbands and to such and such near relatives. In other words, observe the limitations of Barda which have been enjoined upon you albeit you are not required to observe barda from your slaves. From this verse, it becomes evident that the actual purport of this Islamic teaching relevant to slavery was to ensure that Muslims treated slaves exactly as their own near relatives. This was to the extent that Muslim women were not required to observe barda from their slaves, so that feelings of alienation were dispelled completely, and such interaction was developed as is the case of relatives. Then it has been mentioned in Hadith, Abu Dhar narrates that the Holy Prophet would state, Your slaves are your brethren. Hence, if an individual has a slave under his control, then you should feed him what he eats himself, and he should clothe him and what he wears himself. Do not burden your slaves with a task that is beyond their capacity, and if you do, then assist them in this task yourselves.
The words assist them also indicate that the task assigned should not be of a nature that if the master was required to do it himself, he would consider it degrading. Rather, the task should be of such as could be performed by the master as well, and one he was prepared to perform himself. This hadith is clear in its meaning, and it is categorical evidence of the fact that the teaching brought by the Holy Prophet has not only commanded that slaves be treated well, but also with the utmost kindness. Most definitely, the like of this cannot be found in any other religion or nation. Moreover, the true objective of this teaching was actually to ensure that Muslims fully consider their slaves as brothers. They were taught to keep slaves exactly as they lived themselves, so that their civilization and society was elevated to exactly the same level as those who were free, and feelings of inferiority were dispelled from their hearts. Otherwise, such an in-depth teaching would not have been given whereby it was instructed that slaves should be kept exactly as a person lived himself, merely for the purpose of treating them well. After all, there is such a thing as giving regard to status, and Islam accepts this as well. Then it is narrated in a hadith, Ubada bin Walid narrates that on one occasion we met a companion of the Holy Prophet named Abdul Yusr. At the time, one of his slaves also accompanied him, and we noticed that he was clothed in a street cloth and Yemeni cloth. Similarly, his slave was also wearing a street cloth and Yemeni cloth. I said, O oh, uncle, why did you not take his street cloth and give your Yemeni cloth, or take his Yemeni cloth and give him your streaked one, so that both of you could wear a matching pair of clothes? Abul Yusr stroked my head, supplicated in my favor, and said, O oh, nephew, my eyes have seen, my ears have heard, and my heart has given place to the statement of the Holy Prophet that feed your slaves what you eat, and clothe them with what you wear yourselves. Hence, I prefer greatly to give my slave an equal share of the wealth of this world, as opposed to losing my spiritual reward on the day of resurrection. This hadith is even more emphatic in its wording than the previous hadith. Furthermore, this also demonstrates that the companions would act upon this exhortation of the Holy Prophet. As a matter of fact, they were so absorbed in this fulfillment of this admonition that they could not even accept that there being discrimination in the standard of their own clothing and that of their slaves. Rather, even the slightest difference in apparent form was not left unnoticed. Then it is narrated, Abu Nawar, who was a merchant of cotton cloth, narrates that on one occasion, Hazrat Ali came to his shop. At the time, he was accompanied by one of his slaves. Ali purchased two thin shirts and said to a slave, Select the shirt that you desire from among these two. Hence, the slave chose a shirt and Hazrat Ali wore the one which was left behind. This narration demonstrates that according to the instruction of the Holy Prophet at times, selected companions would act so cautiously that the first opportunity to choose from things belonging to them was given to their slaves. Then they would take whatever was left behind. This is the highest degree of generosity which an individual can show to someone else. Most definitely, such a level of generosity towards slaves cannot merely be for the purpose of treating them well. Rather, in this conduct, the very same far-reaching objective was in view, whereby these slaves should be made to attain the level of free people in terms of their morality and society so that they become capable of manumission.
Then it is narrated in Hadith, Abu Huraira narrates that the Holy Prophet would state, O ye Muslims, you should not say, my slave, my bondwoman. Rather, you should say, my lad, my lass. A slave should also refrain from calling his owner Rub, i.e. my lord. Rather, he should address him by saying, my master or my guardian. In this hadith, the mindset of both the master and slave has been set aright. In other words, on one hand, thoughts of pride and arrogance have been effaced from the heart and mind of the master. And on the other hand, feelings of confidence and self-respect have been instilled in the heart of the slave. Moreover, coupled with the practical and societal reformation, which has been mentioned above, this mental reform was like gold, further beautified by ornament. After this, there remained no hindrance in the complete transformation of circumstances and thoughts. Similarly, there are many other hadiths as well, which prove that Islam has laid very emphatic stress upon the reformation, well-being, comfort, and convenience of slaves. Moreover, in this teaching, the actual objective of Islam was to bring the civilization, society, respect, and dignity of slaves and their masters to an equal level, so that slaves could become capable of release as quickly as possible, so that they could become beneficial and useful citizens of the country. It should also be remembered that the rights of slaves, which has been presented above by way of example, were not mere recommendations. Rather, they were religious and legal orders. Furthermore, the rights of slaves were very strictly guarded by the Islamic State. As such, it is narrated in Hadith, Abu Masood Badari relates that on one occasion, due to some reason I hit my slave. At that time, I heard a voice of a person from behind me saying, Look here, Abu Masood, what are you doing? But in my anger, I could not recognize the voice and continued beating my slave. During this time, the voice began to move closer. When I turned around, I found the Holy Prophet approaching me, repeating the same words, Look here, Abu Masood, what are you doing? Upon seeing the Holy Prophet, my staff fell from my hands. The Holy Prophet angrily looked towards me and said, O Abu Masood, there is a God above you who possesses more power with respect to you than you possess over this slave. I submitted, O Messenger of Allah, I free this slave for the sake of God. The Holy Prophet said, If you had not done so, the fire of hell would have burned your face. Then it is narrated in the Hadith, Ibn Abbas relates that once a slave presented himself before the Holy Prophet and began to say, O Messenger of Allah, my master married me to his bondwoman, but now he desires to annul our marriage and separate us from each other. Upon hearing this, the Holy Prophet took to the podium angrily and addressed the people, saying, O ye Muslims, what is the matter with you that first you marry your slaves to your bondwomen, and then you desire to separate them of your own accord? Listen well, this can never happen. It is the right of the husband to give a divorce, but you cannot compel your slaves to do so. Then it is narrated in a hadith, Imam Malik relates that it was a practice of Hazrat Umar to go to the suburbs of Medina every week. Whenever he would notice a slave being subjected to work that was beyond his capacity and ability, he would order the work to be lightened. Teaching of the Holy Prophet regarding the manumission of existing slaves. 
Now we take up the second aspect of this question, which relates to the manumission of existing slaves, which was a prime objective of Islam and the founder of Islam. Hence, it should be known that in this regard, two methods have been employed by Islam. Firstly, the recommendatory method, and secondly, the coercive method. By the united effects of both these practices, the liberation movement was given strength. First, we take up the recommendatory method. In the very beginning, when the Holy Prophet initially made his claim, and he still resided in Mecca, the following divine revelation was sent down. O Messenger, are you aware of a religious precept which may be likened to a great ascent upon a mountain by which a person is able to climb to the heights of divine nearness? If you are unaware, then we tell you that it is the freeing of a slave. Then he states, True virtue in the estimation of God is that an individual believes in God, spends in his cause for love of him and on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and for freeing slaves. It is narrated in Hadith, Abu Huraira relates that the Holy Prophet would say, Such a Muslim who frees a slave would be granted complete salvation by Allah the Exalted from hell. Then it is narrated in Hadith, Bara bin Azib relates that a Bedouin presented himself before the Holy Prophet and said, O Messenger of Allah, inform me of such a deed that if I perform it, I may directly be admitted into paradise. The Holy Prophet said, You have used very few words, but inquired of a matter which is rather great. You should free a slave, and if you're unable to do so alone, then do so with the help of others. Then it is narrated in Hadith, Abu Burda relates from his father that the Holy Prophet said, If a person has a bondwoman whom he educates well, teaches good manners, frees her, and then marries her, such an individual would be worthy of a double reward from God. Aside from these emphatic recommendations, the manumission of slaves has been established as law in the Islamic doctrine as atonement for various lapses and sins. This can be understood as falling between the recommendatory method and coercive method. Hence, Allah the Exalted states in the Holy Quran, the punishment of an individual who kills a believer by mistake is that he shall free a Muslim slave and pay blood money to be handed over to his heirs, unless they remit it by themselves. But if such individual is unable to find a slave to be freed, then he shall fast for two consecutive months. Then he states, If the person slain be of a people that is hostile to you and at war with you, but the person, i.e. the one slain, to be a believer, then the punishment of the offender shall be the freeing of a Muslim slave. But if such an individual is unable to find a slave, then he shall fast for two consecutive months. And if the person slain be of a people between whom and you there are covenants and agreements, even if he is a disbeliever, then the punishment of the offender shall be to pay blood money to the heirs of the person slain and free a Muslim slave. But if such an individual is unable to find a slave, then he shall fast for two consecutive months. If a person takes an oath in the name of God, then breaks it. The expiation for this is the feeding of ten poor people according to this capacity, or the clothing of them, or the freeing of a slave. But whoso is unable to find a slave shall fast for three days. And as for those who vow to abstain from their wives, but for some reason desire to return to them, their expiation is the freeing of a slave. But whoso does not find one, he must fast for two consecutive months, and whoso is not able to fast should feed sixty poor people.
There are different methods of expiation which Islam has prescribed for the manumission of slaves. Moreover, as per its custom, taking into consideration of variance in circumstances, Islam has prescribed two or three alternatives and given Muslims the choice to follow whichever course of action is easiest and best. Furthermore, it is with great wisdom that in these verses, wherever God the Exalted has alluded to the freeing of slaves, he has also added that if an individual is unable to find a slave, then the following method should be employed. This proves that the actual intent of Islam was to ultimately do away with the practice of slavery altogether. Hence, as an alternative to the practice of freeing a slave, the words, if an individual is unable to find a slave, definitely demonstrate that there is no doubt that in the fact that the prime objective of Islam was to free existing slaves. Then it is narrated in a hadith, Asma bint Abi Bakr relates that the Holy Prophet would order the Muslims to free a slave on the occasion of a solar eclipse. Now we take up the method of freeing up slaves by compulsion. In this respect, Islam has proposed various methods. It is related in a hadith. Suwaid, the companion of the Holy Prophet, relates that we were seven brothers who owned a single slave. Due to some reason, one of us became angry and slapped the slave. When the Holy Prophet was informed, he commanded that the slave be freed. The very same hadith is related by Ibn Umar as well, in which he mentioned that if an individual beats his slave and then sets him free, he shall receive no spiritual reward for this action. The reason being that the freeing of a slave has been prescribed as a punishment for a master who beats his slave. In other words, one method employed by the Holy Prophet to free slaves by compulsion was to prescribe the punishment that if a master beats his slave, he must then release him immediately. Then it is related in hadith, Ibn Umar relates that the Holy Prophet commanded, if an individual happens to acquire a slave who turns out to be a close relative, that slave shall be considered free by default. Then it is related in hadith, Ibn Umar and Abu Huraira relate the Holy Prophet said, A person who possesses joint ownership of a slave, and he chooses to free the slave by way of his own share, it becomes his obligation to pay the other owners their share from his own wealth, and to free the slave completely. If that person does not possess enough wealth to do so, even still the slave shall be freed practically, so that he may earn the remaining sum owed to the other masters, and secure complete freedom for himself. In this respect, the slave shall be facilitated in every possible way. Then it is narrated in Hadith that once a few slaves fled from the idolaters of Mecca and reached the Holy Prophet. Upon this, the idolaters requested the Holy Prophet to return those slaves to them. Various Muslims also interceded on their behalf, but the Holy Prophet became displeased. As such, the words of this Hadith are as follows. The Holy Prophet became angry on this occasion and refused to return the slaves. The Holy Prophet said, These are slaves have been set free by Allah. Shall I return them to a life of slavery and polytheism once again? Then it is related in Hadith, Ibn Abbas relates that the Holy Prophet would say, If a person marries his bondwoman, even if he does not free her, but a child is born to him from the bondwoman, she will be considered free by default thereafter. Another narration is related that an Ummul Walad wife shall be considered free even in the case of a stillbirth. Permanent System for the Manumission of Slaves
There were various methods of compulsory manumission which have been described by Islam. However, it is obvious that despite these compulsory releases, many such slaves still remained who were unable to benefit from any one of these. Furthermore, the acquisition of their freedom was not definite in the case of mere recommendation. Therefore, it was necessary that a permanent and solid system be arranged by which existing slaves could continue to secure their own freedom. Hence, in this respect, Islam proposed the ingenious system known as Muqatabat. Under this system, the master was obliged to free his slave on the condition that he had become capable of manumission and generated a reasonable amount to pay for his own freedom. This amount was to be decided upon according to the circumstances of the slave, the identification of which rested with the government, a judiciary, and not in the hands of the master. As such, Allah the Exalted states, O ye Muslims, from among your slaves, such as desire a deed of manumission and writing, it is your obligation to settle an argument of muqattabat with them and free them on the condition that they have become capable of manumission. Moreover, it is also your obligation to give them a portion of this wealth, which actually belongs to God, but He has bestowed it upon you as a result of Muqattabat. This verse serves as the foundation stone of the compulsory system of manumission. Although the words are very brief, the meanings contained therein are immensely vast and outstandingly forceful. In this verse, Muslims have been commanded that the such slaves as desire to settle an agreement of muqattabat with them in order to secure manumission, it is their obligation to release them on the condition that they have become capable of freedom. An agreement of muqattabat refers to the settlement between a slave and his master, that if the slave pays a certain amount to his master, he shall be deemed free. The method of this was that after an agreement of this nature has been made to the slave, would practically be released. However, in this state of half-freedom, the slave would take up work or a profession in commerce, trade and skill, agriculture or labor, etc., and endeavor to pay the amount settled in the agreement of Muqattabat. When this amount was fully paid, that person would be considered as being free completely. Furthermore, although this amount of Muqattabat was considered to be under the full control of the master, it was still his obligation to give an appropriate share to the slave as well. The system was so blessed and ingenious that such slaves as were worthy continued to be released as a right. Moreover, since slaves were compelled to take up independent work in order to pay the amount settled in Muqattabat and were made to bear the responsibility of a civil agreement, they also developed the ability of living a free life and becoming beneficial citizens of the country. This system of Muqattabat was not dependent on the desire of the master. Rather, it was compulsory. In other words, a master did not possess the right to refuse a slave's demand for muqattabat. It was the task of the judiciary or government to determine whether the slave had become capable of manumission. As such, there is a narration. Anas, who was the companion of the Holy Prophet, owned a slave named Sidin, who desired to settle an agreement of muqattabat with Anas. However, Anas refused, thinking that he possessed much wealth and did not require the wealth of muqattabat. Upon this, Sirin filed a complaint against Anas with Hazrat Umar. Upon hearing the complaint lodged by Sirin, Hazrat Umar ordered Anas to accept the request for Makattabat. However, Anas remained adamant upon refusal. At this, Hazrat Umar whipped Anas and recited to him the verse, O ye Muslims, 
If your slave desire a deed of manumission and writing, it is your obligation to settle an agreement of Mukattabat with them. Upon this, Anas settled an agreement with Mukattabat with Sirin. The basis of the obligation of Mukattabat depended on whether a slave had become capable of manumission or not. As such, Yahya bin Kathir relates, the Holy Prophet would say that where the Holy Quran states, it is your obligation not to refuse a proposal of Mukattabat. If you find good in your slaves, the good which has been referred to here is the ability of a trade skill. In other words, it becomes obligatory to settle Mukattabat with such slaves who are knowledgeable in a trade or skill, or who possess the ability to quickly learn one, so that they do not become a burden on society in any way after their acquisition of freedom. As mentioned above, the decision of whether a slave possesses this capability or not was in the hands of the government and did not depend on the desire of the master. This hadith also expounds that in actuality, the true desire of the Islamic teaching was to make the circumstances of existing slaves better and then instill within them the capability of manumission. Hence, as slaves continued to grow capable, so too they continued to acquire their freedom. Since the method of Muqattabat was the foundation stone of the manumission of slaves, it has been highly preferred in Islam. As such, it has been related in Hadith. Abu Huraira relates that the Holy Prophet would state, There are three kinds of people for whom Allah the Exalted has declared that He would grant them succor as their right. Firstly, a slave who has settled an agreement for Muqattabat and is worried about paying the sum owed by him. Secondly, a person who married with the intention of guarding his chastity. Thirdly, a person who strives in the cause of Allah. The liberation movement of slaves was not only limited to individuals, rather it was an obligation of the Islamic State to spend an adequate sum on the manumission of slaves from the national Baytul Mal. Hence, Allah the Exalted states in the Holy Quran, The wealth of zakat is to be spent on the poor and needy and upon those employed in connection therewith and upon weak new Muslims and for the manumission of slaves and for those in debt and for the propagation of religion and for the comfort of the wafer and ordinance from Allah the Exalted. In light of this verse, an obligation has been put upon the Islamic State to spend funds on the manumission of slaves from the revenue generated from zakat. Doctrine Relevant to Freed Slaves In this system of the manumission of slaves, it was also ensured that even after manumission, freed slaves did not remain completely without support and assistance. Therefore, the Holy Prophet devised a system whereby a master and his freed slave always remained tied together in a kind of brotherhood. According to the instruction of the Holy Prophet, a master and his freed slave were referred to as the maula, or friend and helper, of one another. This was so that both master and slave kept in mind that they were friends, and in time of need they would help each other. It is due to this wisdom that a freed slave and his master were made heirs to one another. In other words, if a slave died without heirs, his previous master would inherit his wealth. Similarly, if a master died without heirs, his freed slave would inherit his wealth. As such, it is related in Hadith. Aisha relates that the Holy Prophet would state, If a freed slave died without heirs, his wealth shall be inherited by the previous master. Ibn Abbas relates that one occasion a person died without heirs, albeit a freed slave who once belonged to him was alive. The Holy Prophet granted his inheritance to his freed slave.
The foundation of this right of inheritance was not based on monetary or economic reasons. Rather, the actual desire was to maintain a relationship between a master and his freed slave. For this reason, the Holy Prophet issued the order that this right of inheritance could not be put up for sale or given as a gift, etc. As such, Ibn Umar relates, the Holy Prophet prohibited the buying and selling or gifting of the right of inheritance between a freed slave and his master. That in order to establish the dignity and honor of freed slaves, it is mentioned in Hadith. On one occasion, Sulman, Suhaib, and Bilal, who were freed slaves, were sitting somewhere. Abu Sufyan happened to pass by and they said, This enemy of God was saved from the sword of Allah. When Hazrat Abu Bakr heard this, he admonished them, saying, Is this how you speak of the leader of the Quraysh? After this, Abu Bakr presented himself before the Holy Prophet and related the entire incident. The Holy Prophet said, Abu Bakr, are you certain that you have not displeased Bilal, etc.? For in their displeasure is the displeasure of God. Abu Bakr returned to Bilal immediately and said, O brothers, I hope you are not displeased at what I said. They responded, O brother, we are not displeased. There is nothing to worry about.